Welcome to On Trial, starring Mark Radlich. Also starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. All rise. Court is now in session. The Honorable Judge Harry T. Stone providing. This is On Trial, a production uh, from the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. And tonight I am your defense attorney, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And on the docket is the 2001 American science fiction psychological thriller, cult classic, if you will, directed, written and directed by Richard Kelly and starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Donnie Darko. Yes, and it stands accused of being one of those films that is not as good as everyone seems to think it is and part of the community of film snobbery. Prosecuting Donnie Darko this evening, just taking the piss out of it, (laughs) tying it to a tree and flogging it. Ladies and gentlemen, he's Sean Comer, you're not. How do you do, sir? (laughs) Movie prepared to have the reality that you age like milk forcibly inserted into your anus. So there are two reasons we're doing this tonight. One, um, as we're recording this, this is October 25th, 2021. Tomorrow is the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of the release of the movie in the United States, October 26th, 2001. And uh, that leads us to reason number two. Um, I mentioned this before when we reviewed Spun over the summer. We got into kind of a sidebar conversation about mm. um, the the history of early 2000 film and the snobbery that it produced and how, you know, some things have aged better than others um, and some may have gotten an undue reputation for being better than they really are. And the first one that came to both of our minds was Donnie Darko. So we're like, you know what? The anniversary is coming up. We have some, <laughs> we have some time on the schedule. We never get to – because – you know, we're always busy doing contemporaneous things. We never get to just have fun and just take the piss out of something both of us want to, you know, uh, kick in the gut. So what the hell? Let's dedicate an hour of our lives to tearing apart Donnie Darko. And so here we are, tearing apart Donnie Darko, Sean. <laughs> and look, I I want to stress this as the kinder, gentler Sean that some of you have come to know and love. If you like this movie... That's fine. I don't begrudge you for liking it. I'm I'm not one of these critics who will say that it speaks to your terrible taste in movies. It probably just speaks to you hitting it to it hitting you maybe a little bit differently on the inside than it does me. I will. Uh, but I, I want to just comment is, on that real quick. Yeah, at, at no point. I don't think this is a bad mm-hmm. movie. I just my my issue is I think it has this just this reputation of being like this work of art. And I'm like, it's fine. <laughs> it's just not the world's greatest thing captured mm-hmm. on celluloid since it's, sol- it's solidly mediocre. Yeah. 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 It is it, it, it is a it is a satisfying solemn solid dead even middle of the road C movie. Yes. That is that is a out where I where I would rank it, and it has its finer points. 
that if you looked just at those, I would say it could certainly elevate it above that. But to be honest, this was this was my the first time in years I had sat down and watched it. And I actually reneged on something that I had initially planned. I was going to go back and watch the director's cut, which with 20 more minutes of footage tells, in my opinion, a more coherent story. However, uh, something that has really started to stick in my craw over the years has been the way movies have started leaning in to double dip, double dips with director's cuts, extended cuts, unrated cuts, what have you, as a means of saving face when what the majority of people get to see when they spend their hard-earned money on it is really pretty dissatisfying and disappointing. It's kind of the way people get annoyed at the fact that the the, the institution of downloadable content has led to a rash of high of high-priced, full-priced triple uh, A video games hitting the market in sloppy, unfinished, in some cases nigh unplayable states because the developers seem to just be leaning on the idea of ah fuck it, we'll just issue a patch. <laughs> and that'll fix and that'll fix ever that'll fix everything. Yeah, okay, so what if it sucks on release? We can just go ahead and release it and then just keep releasing patches until we get roughly what we want to. Well no, I wanted to judge this based on the version that I saw the very first time, the DVD that I borrowed from my buddy John back in high school. I think, if I recall correctly, and this was when my own uh, my own film tastes were really starting to broaden, I think he loaned me this and Memento mm. over the course of over the course of like a weekend. And say what you will about Christopher Nolan, Memento holds up fantastically. Oh, Memento's great. I will die on that hill. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was gonna, I was gonna say, if you happen to disagree, you can feel free to feel free to schedule an episode. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll no, put no. the gloves on for that one. Uh, um, no, no issue there. <laughs> oh, oh, you know what? You know what? No, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. Um, it wasn't. Memento. He loaned me Memento at another time. He was he because he was also my introduction to Christopher Nolan. I'll always be grateful for that much. But the one that he loaned me with this one was an equally pretentious indie uh, called Waking Life. Okay, that, one, that I have no idea what that is. Oh, I'm not even sure I would subject. I'm I'm not. I, I was get well. Basically, what it is, it's a succession of largely unrelated rotoscope animated shorts. Um, all of it shot with actual live actors, and then you know, it's 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 rotoscoped later. Um, and it's just one several minutes long socio-philosophical diatribe after another. 
that that's that's pretty much all there is to it there uh, there is no plot to speak to speak of and at the time i remember being just just utterly dazzled by it because fuck it i was about 18 19 years old um i'm not sure i could watch it now without copious amounts of controlled substances <laughs> but no anyway Anyway, I've, I'm digressing wildly, wildly off course. Um, no, uh, so again, I watched I watched that same version that I watched originally years and years down the line, and oof, this ages like milk. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into the notes here. What do you got for me? <laughs> it just, yeah. Um. Not a whole lot. I didn't bother with a whole lot of notes. Um, the most note the the most noteworthy element of it is probably the fact that this is this is the breakout role for Jake for Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, I, I'm sure there are some Bubble Boy stands out there that probably want a piece of want a piece of me for that. Zero fucks given. <laughs> It is. It's. It's one of the. It's one of the first 1980s period pieces, like like alongside American Psycho, mm-hmm. to be really fondly, deeply fondly remembered. Um, it's. It's a melding of science fiction with coming of age. Richard, director Richard and writer Richard Kelly himself has summed up the script as, quote, an amusing and poignant recollection of suburban America in the Reagan era. So, strap the fuck in. He based it on a news story that stuck with him on childhood. From childhood, uh, he... He also kind of kind of dismissed it as more of an urban legend than any than anything about a plane flying over a house and giant hunk of ice just falls off falls off the wing and plunges through a young boy's bedroom and he would have been good and thoroughly smushed had he actually been in there at the time. So that's where we get the idea of spoilers. The mysterious jet engine plunging through the palatial <laughs> affluent mayo on Wonder Bread dark Darko home. Um with no one being able to place where the hell it came hell it came from. And somehow the script just kind of came together from there I mean it's 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 not exactly Wes Craven recalling the plight of uh, Southeast Asian immigrants and and how and how they were dying en masse suddenly in their suddenly in their sleep and from that we get Nightmare on Elm Street but I guess it is a jumping off point in any port in any port in a storm I suppose 
he 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 wanted to set it specifically in 19, 1988 right in the thick of the Dukakis Bush presidential campaign because he felt that it was a fresh era for society that film had not yet touched on and he's right because again at that juncture when you when i think of 80s period pieces and help me out mark if i'm missing if i'm missing one the only other one that really comes to mind is uh american psycho and that seemed to me more like a portrait of the mid 80s maybe i have actually not seen american like, like psycho. mid like, like somewhere in the mid early 80s get out nope haven't i've really? never actually seen it yeah believe it or not I would have thought that would have been one that at some point, at the very least, somebody would have talked you into. Um, boy, it's not like people haven't tried. Um, and it's not like I'm disinterested. It's just one that got past me and <laughs> much like Dexter and the Sopranos and a handful of others. It's just not one that I made the time to watch, uh, <laughs> watch recently. Um, I'll get around to it someday. Oh, I'm making a mental post of that one. Mm. Um, so, uh, Kelly has said that he he considers Donnie to contain plenty of him of himself. He grew up in uh, in affluent, well well to do, quiet Virginia, quiet Virginia in the suburbs. He, uh, he he even had a local woman named Grandma Death, whose whole thing was kind of setting up camp along on the side of the road and just perpetually opening and closing her mailbox. And you know, points that's that that's an inventive way to come upon uh, a big pillar of your of your time trap of your whole time travel mystery. Um. He uh, he also adapted the moment that he himself nearly ran nearly ran over a homeless person while driving, which <laughs> I've that's that's a terrifying experience in and of itself in and of itself if you're a driver. Um, you know arguments that he had with with school teach with school teachers um, and even being a sleepwalker. Uh, Frank was a rabbit pretty much right from the get-go. He uh, he didn't know whether he wanted the character to be part of, to be part of a dream or not. And I mean that's that's the gist of the real the gist of the really juicy stuff I think. And otherwise, as far as just a quick little footnote about the actual success of it it um it received a delayed release as you know everything having to having to do with uh airplanes at that time at that time was it a crash a crashing plane you know September 11th had just had just happened about a month and a half earlier, 
So we received virtually no advertising. Uh, that's that could be attributed as a big reason why it grossed only five hundred seventeen thousand three hundred seventy-five dollars at the box office initially. Uh, but it would go on to become an absolute critical art house darling, um, ranked number two on Empire's fifty greatest independent films of all time. Wow, I really don't know about that. Uh, and number 53 in their 500 greatest movies of all time, which, holy shit, Empire. Oversell it a little harder, why don't you? But, <laughs> however, once you account for the reissues, it eventually went on to gross $7.5 million worldwide. Uh, earned another $500,000 in sales on in sales on video where it gained its notorious cult following Kelly released the aforementioned Donnie Darko the director's cut in 2004 in 2007 it was adapted into a stage production it received a a bafflingly unnecessary and horrendous sequel S Darko with in 2009 with no involvement from Kelly and sometime earlier this year and I just found this out when researching for the podcast uh, he announced that he's working on a completely fresh sequel oh joy oh rapture fuck if I know why yeah (laughs) (laughs) which again again I stress yes I snarked. Yes, I expressed my displeasure, but I'm sure there are people out there that are going to be thrilled to hear that news, and good for you. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Like what you like, enjoy what you enjoy what you enjoy. I'm no more beholden to your opinion than you are to mine. <laughs> All right. Uh let's get into so. the Shall, shall we get into trying to dissect this semblance of a plot? Yep. Uh, before we do, I just want a quick shout out to our sponsor, Grammarly. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly, Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash w2mnetwork to download Grammarly for free. And now, this is a rather dense plot synopsis. On October 2nd, 1988, in a small town of Middlesex, Virginia, intellectual but troubled teenager Donald J. Donnie Darko has been experiencing bouts of sleepwalking and wakes up on a road before cycling home. Later that night, led by a mysterious voice, he sleepwalks out of his home. Um, Once outside, he meets a figure in a monstrous rabbit costume whom Donnie comes to refer to as Frank, who tells Donnie that the world will end in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. Donnie wakes up the next morning on a local golf course and returns home to discover a jet engine has crashed into his bedroom, you know, like we've all experienced. His older sister, Elizabeth, tells him the FAA investigators do not know its origin. Well, I mean, it probably came from a plane. Anyway, over the next several days, Donnie continues to have his visions of Frank. 
His parents, Eddie <laughs> and Eaton Rose, consult with the psychiatrist, Dr. Thurman. She believes he is detached from reality and that his visions of Frank are daylight hallucinations due to paranoid schizophrenia. Frank begins to influence Donnie's actions through his sleepwalking episodes, including causing him to flood his high school by breaking through a water main with an axe. Donnie also meets a girl named Gretchen Ross, who has recently moved into a town with her mother under a new identity to escape her violent stepfather. Dr. Thurman hypnotizes Donnie at his next therapy session, but it ends with him discussing his sexual fantasies involving Christina Applegate while he unzips his pants like you do in therapy, causing Thurman to end the session prematurely. <laughs> Later, Don <laughs> Later, Donnie goes to a clearing and shoots bottles while his friends discuss the sexual components of Smurfs. This is the best part of the movie. While there, Donnie and his friends spot a seemingly senile old woman... <laughs> Who stands in the road in front of her house and is almost run over. A few days prior to this, Donnie is in a car with his father, Eddie, who is driving around, and he almost runs her over as well. Donnie steps out of the car to check on her, and the old woman whispers in his ear, Every living, every living creature on Earth dies alone, like you do. Donnie later brings this up in one of his therapy sessions, admitting he doesn't want to be alone. The old woman is nicknamed Grandma Death by the locals. She stands in the road every day and checks her empty mailbox frequently, despite never getting any email. Gym teacher and Christian fundamentalist, because there's always one in these movies, Kitty Farmer, attributes the act of vandalism to the influence of the short story The Destructors, uh, because, uh. because books are for burning, assigned by dedicated English teacher Karen uh, Pomeroy taking a respite from Adam Sandler movies. She's played by Drew Barrymore. Kitty begins teaching attitude lessons taken from the local motivational speaker, Jim Cunningham, played by the late Patrick Sweezy. Uh, unfortunately, not dancing at all in this movie. But Donnie rebels against these, leading to a friction between Kitty and Rose, who both have young daughters in the same dance troupe. By the way, and, and this is just as an aside, and I don't want to start shit with people, and I... And I and, just this just happened to this just happened to pop up in my mind. I'm watching the filming of the dance routine, and I'm thinking to myself, in 20 mm. years, a small segment of the population is going to lose its fucking mind over the how the filming of the dancing in Cuties was done. But nobody seems to have lost their mind over this over children younger than the girls mm -hmm. in that movie with equally grotesque shots of nope. buttocks and crotches nope. <laughs> and i'm just saying <laughs> what what 20 years later this is you know it's offensive 20 years prior we're like who cares yeah i'm i, I i'm left with no choice but to pretty much concede concede that in terms of what the fuck y'all frank asked donnie who in turn asked his science <laughs> where, teacher where was this energy Dr. Kenneth Monotov if he believes in time travel, taking the movie in a completely different direction. Monotov gives Donnie some information on the topic, but later cuts their session short out of fear of losing his job, uh, not, but not before giving Donnie the philosophy of time travel, a book written by a former nun called Roberta Sparrow, who has since become Grandma Death. Later, while watching football, Donnie notices bubbly columns emerging from the chest of people around him that show Donnie where the person will move, matching illustrations from Sparrow's book. A bubble appears on his chest, and he follows it to his parents' closet, where he finds and takes a gun. Kitty arranges for Cunningham to speak at a school assembly, where Donnie insults him while offering his own advice to other children who had voiced their fears to Cunningham. He later finds Cunningham's wallet in an address while on a date 
with Gretchen at the local cinema. Donnie envisions Frank with one of his eyes shot out. Frank suggests Donnie set Cunningham's house on fire, which he does. Firefighters discover a horde of child pornography there, because of course they do. Cunningham is arrested, and Kitty, who wishes to testify in his defense, asks Rose to take her place as chaperone for their daughter's dance troupe on its trip to Los Angeles. With Rose and their little sister, Samantha, in Los Angeles, and Eddie away for business, Donnie and Elizabeth hold a Halloween costume party to celebrate Elizabeth's acceptance to Harvard. At the party, Gretchen arrives distraught as her mother has gone missing, which she assumed was caused by her stepfather, and it is implied that she and Donnie have sex for the first time. When Donnie realizes that Frank's prophesied end of the world is only hours away, he, <clears throat> he takes Gretchen and two, others, uh, and two other friends to find Sparrow. Instead, they find two high school bullies, Seth and Ricky, and try to rob Sparrow's, trying to rob Sparrow's home. Donnie, Seth, and Ricky fight in the road in front of her house just as she returns home. Donnie's two friends and the bullies flee when an oncoming car runs over Gretchen, killing her. The driver is Elizabeth's boyfriend, Frank Anderson, wearing the same rabbit costume from Donnie's visions. Donnie shoots him in the eye with his father's stolen gun and walks home carrying Gretchen's body. Donnie returns home as a vortex forms over his house. He takes one of his parents' cars, loads Gretchen's body into it, and drives to a nearby ridge that overlooks the town. There he watches as the plane carrying Rose and the dance troupe home from Los Angeles gets caught in the vortex wake, which rips off and catches one of the uh, engines. Events of the previous 28 days rewind. Donnie wakes up in his bedroom, recognizes the date as October 2nd, and laughs as the jet engine falls into his bedroom, crushing him. Around town, whose, uh, those whose lives Donnie would have touched wake up from troubled dreams. Gretchen, who in this timeline had never met Donnie, bikes to the Darko home the next morning and learns of his death. She and Rose exchange glances and wave as if they know each other but cannot remember from where. All right. Prosecution. Make your case. Okay. Before I do, before I do that, um, just kind of we cut this part out um could i ask you to do me a small favor mark okay so this is far from the worst movie ever made it's it's not the worst movie we've ever reviewed but like a lot of others i feel like it's a waste of everything that it does well first off visually it's fantastic it's it's absolutely outstanding craft especially for such a then young unproven director it's it's a fun beautiful movie to look at uh it has it has a really sparse score that doesn't insist on itself it's choice of incidental 80s pop songs from the from the ubiquitous cover of Mad World by Gary Jules through other selections like uh, Under the Milky Way, The Killing Moon, Head Over Heels, uh, the the dance sequence playing out over Notorious by Duran Duran. It it, it all comes across so well and succeeds at really painting a pretty complete picture of the late 80s without anything ever feeling like it's insisting on itself or or out of place there's kind of just enough of enough of everything so 
in terms of craft, in terms of a sensory aspect, yeah, it's a one. It's a wonderful movie. Some of the special effects maybe don't age terribly well, but then again, we're talking about nearly a twenty-year-old movie and one that was made on, by comparison, a real shoestring budget. The only thing is, the story is truly all over the fucking place. And is so often it seems like it's like it's trying to say to say a lot without really saying anything of any significance at all. There's there's nothing to really take away from any of these characters necessarily. Uh, I mean, Donnie is yes. He's he's a troubled teen in the eighties in a polished, you know, white you know, white, well to do suburb. But and, and yes, he, he's acutely aware of how phony the veneer of everything is around him. But at the same time, even if you're looking at it at from a standpoint of well, you know, this is about the struggles of a clearly mentally ill teen. It's, I mean, if you look around him, he mostly really receives pretty solid support from everyone around him. From his teenagers to his, his parents are willing to put him through, to put him through therapy and make sure that he receives the medication that he that he needs, which he resent, he resents the hell out of, which for me, from a personal stand standpoint, while while I kind of get it, I'm also kind of going, man, fuck you. I I wish I had had that kind of a resource available to me when when I was your age, and um, and that and that opportunity to kind of to kind of be heard out like that. But there's really very little actual conflict at times that feels like it's ongoing. At times, it really feels more like more like wish fulfillment. It, it kind of feels like sci-fi wish fulfillment more than anything else. And maybe it's just the way it came across came across to me. Maybe some people absorbed it as the ultimate climax being a way of saying. You know, kind of reflecting on that foreshadowing by his therapist of if the sky opened up, there would be only you and the choices you've made and the people and the people you've touched. But it feels a little bit at times like, ah, ha, 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 you know, everybody will be sorry when I'm not everybody's you know going to be sorry when i'm not here to when i'm not here to touch these lives and these lives and take action uh because it never really feels like, like any of it like any of the growth is really entirely earned by anything um, it's just kind. Of, it's just kind of, you know, 
handed to him. He really is just kind just kind of a quirky, disturbed, confused sort of superhero in the in the course of the whole thing. So it made it a little bit harder for me to invest in him along the way. And you kind of don't really get much of a chance to entirely invest in anybody except to kind of be charmed or revulsed by whatever their their superficial character is. Um like uh like his like Donnie's sister being kind of the edgy progressive democrat counterpoint to her to her staunch Reagan Bush Republican parents or the the vulnerability of Jenna of Jenna Malone and oh aren't these aren't these stock stereotypical 80s private school private school bullies just just so deplorable no you're you're given characteristics but that's about it you you don't really learn anything about them uh you see that Monotov and um Pomeroy are are a couple and they're clearly well liked for their ambition and dedication to reaching their to reaching their students but i i i mean that's that's about it that, that that's about all we really all we really get to know of them uh, i thought that that beth hunt in terms of in terms of at least being entertaining absolutely stole the show as Kitty Farmer, because my God, I've I, I've known so many strict, just strict by the book fundamentalists who just take everything, everything at at face value. I mean, even even if it's not really in a religious sense, um, you look at her inability. To to comprehend or even entertain the the irony of of the of the destructors, um, and you know the, the the woman has some serious commitment to sparkle motion going on there, <laughs> but it's uh, but but it's always you know commitment to the veneer to superficial and speaking of that. Patrick Swayze is just uh, such an outstanding avatar of of all of it, and he just looks like he's having the time of his life in this role, playing against uh, against the type of so many other roles he's he's best known for. Um, and you know, in the end. You're left with a story that that really is kind of as superficial as the time as the time it's depicting. There's there's nothing of substance to truly take away from it because Donnie doesn't necessarily feel 
by the end of it, like he's really, like he's really been changed. He's just kind of been led along by by Frank and kind of puppeteered for who knows what who knows what reason to take these to take these various actions that really when it boils right down are kind of rendered ultimately meaningless by the end of the movie seeing as how everything is undone by is undone by the vortex all the all the good that he supposed that he supposedly did i mean when we come down to the when we come down to the end yeah they they've all woken up from some hor- from some horrible dreams but there's never any inkling that any of it mattered it's just it comes across as so hollow. It's it's a nice sci it's a nice sci-fi story, but it always feels like it's reaching and trying to come across as deep when really it's just kind of off kilter and weird. And so many times those are kind of the movies that sort of that sort of put me off the most. You know, just the the concept of because I, I tend to kind of prefer movies that know what they are and they're just trying to be that the best way that they possibly can be. Um, this is one that sort of seems deep if you see it at a point when you haven't seen anything else that contains some, some, some truly fleshed out introspection. But such as it is, it's it's a feast for it's a feast for the eyes and ears, and that's really and 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 you get the and you get the visual of a a horrifying metal horrifying metallic bunny man, and you know Terminator Two tendrils sprouting out of sprouting out of people of people's chests, indicating what metaphorical and literal path they're set to walk in the immediate future. But that's about it. I mean I mean otherwise there's nothing else to it that really kind of sticks to my ribs. Okay. Um well that's the that's the prosecution's case. Uh <laughs> You know, here's the thing. Uh, I think my biggest issue with this movie has always been how revered it is by people who, you know, who call themselves like film people. You know, it's one of those, it's like we were saying before, like you haven't seen American Psycho. That's a lot of people's reactions to this movie. You haven't seen Donnie Darko. You know, and it's like I saw it. I remember um, it was like an anniversary of it. Might have been like the, it might have even been the ten year anniversary of it. Now that I think about it, and uh, my friend, I, I, it was it was the infamous weekend we saw four movies uh, in two days or something like that. And I think one in, in the case of Donnie Darko, it was the second movie we saw mm-hmm. like on a Saturday. Uh, we saw like one. We saw whatever the new thing was in the morning, and then we went to go see Donnie Darko at a independent theater in New York City at night. 
And I remember hearing from my friends, and we were all, like, film and artsy people. Like, oh, my God, you got to see Donnie Darko. It's the best thing ever. It's such a cool thing that it's back in theaters, and you can see it on the big screen. And I kind of had the same reaction to that as I had with coffee and cigarettes. Like, really? <laughs> this? This, this, this is in the movies, huh? This is what people are paying to see. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I don't really understand it myself. And it's like you try... I think the movie's biggest crime is that if you're someone like me who who doesn't get it, you know, who doesn't, who, who doesn't, isn't really able to or just doesn't want to dig into the three, four, fifth, and sixth layers of this thing to get its deeper meaning, um, you're, you know, you're not then seen as a serious film person, and I don't think that's fair. Um, a lot of film doesn't speak to people the way that it speaks to others. And the fact that this is used as sort of a measuring stick for someone's like film credentials, I think, it, it, it is what makes it ultimately, for me, such a detestable movie. Oh, gosh, that's not even be. the movie's fault, you know. And and that's my defense of it. Like Maggie Gyllenhaal is fine. This Jake Gyllenhaal, I think, puts on a a really good performance here as an angsty teenager. It's fun to see him as young as he is in this, considering you know what he'll go on to do in later years, and. I think for me, it's a story of... T- it's, a, it's two different movies. There's this time travel, sort of uh, metaf- metaphysical movie that's happening with the vortex and the, um, as you call them, the Terminator 2 tendrils coming out of people, which isn't interesting to me. I think it's Richard Kelly reaching for something that he doesn't quite grasp and other people just giving him, you know, propping him up and giving him the credit that he doesn't really deserve. Um but I think the more interesting thing about this movie and what saves it for me is the fact that at least it's trying to speak to mental illness in an, at a time, and remember this is 20 years ago, at a time where mental illness in movies was you were either a paranoid schizophrenic murderer, you know, or you're the people from Awakenings, I think it's called, you know, with, uh, so I think it was Robin Williams. Uh, you know, this guy who just wants to sob, and you know the people who are committed for persistent mental illness. Like, I um, I don't I don't want to get off too much on a tangent. I'll probably talk more about this with Gavin when we talk about Ted Lasso on Thursday. But a thing that you see on TikTok now, one of the big themes that people post TikToks on more uh, over and over again, is how men's mental health is really ignored. For you know, it wasn't even acknowledged for a long time. Um, and, you know, and even now, while it's becoming less stigmatized, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's still there. There's still a level of men's mental health doesn't matter. It's all it's always about other, you know, other mental health, children's mental health, women's mental health. Um, men are men are just supposed to suck it up, you know, suck it up, walk it off and get over it. And we are you know, we are humans and we bleed like everybody else and we have anxiety and depression like everybody else does, and we are traumatized like everybody else is. Um, those who are traumatized, I should say. And the movie, I, I don't think it handles it the best way, but certainly in, 20, in 2001, it, it, it tried to handle the subject matter better than its contemporaries. And for that, I'll give the movie a lot of credit. Jake Gyllenhaal's character is clearly struggling with some degree of developmental and or intellectual and or mood disorder. Um, I, I there are people who develop uh, schizophrenia. Usually, the you know the age of onset is like late teenage years, so it's entirely possible he was you know 
developing into schizophrenia. Who knows? Um, and I don't know how much Richard Kelly knew about it when he decided that that was the direction this film was going to take. But I can see there are there, there are patterns where where exceptionally bright people have mental breakdowns and start to develop uh, you know, a variety of psychiatric illness. And I wish the movie had just stayed with that. I think him sort of trying to keep it together in the face of his psyche crumbling over the course of the movie was a much more interesting story than this sort of concentric metaphysical tale about a jet engine falling out of the sky. Because that's the stuff everyone focuses on, but it's the least interesting part of this movie for me. Um, His relationship with Gretchen, played by the lovely uh, Jenna Malone, I didn't even realize that was Jenna Malone. That's how long ago this was. Uh, this has got an all-star cast, by the way. I, I'm going to put that in its favor. Between Jake Gyllenhaal, right. the, the Gyllenhaals, James Duvall, oh, yeah. Patrick Swayze, um, what do you call it? Uh, Jenna Malone, an early Seth Rogen before you know he became a dude bro pot, pot guy. Drew Barrymore, not in an Adam Sandler movie. Yep. I'll make yep. that joke again. This is quite the all-star <laughs> cast here. It's something, every, it's something everyone obviously believed in mm-hmm. when they when – they, decided to be a part of this and um it, it definitely it definitely props the film up anyway his relationship with Jen, with the jenna malone character you know and them you know being awkward teenagers sort of struggling through first dates and kisses and all of that i think was fun you know so much of the movie it's like it, two-thirds of this movie is dealing with very human very personal stuff you know, it, it it has that footloose vibe to it where you have this intensely religious community and somebody bucking those trends in the um, Drew Barrymore character. Uh, and then, of course, the town turns on her. Like, that conversation she has with the principal where he's basically gaslighting her, you know. Boy, that's something we, I think we can all identify with. Those are very real moments. And I think those are the best parts of this movie. That's why I, I say I don't think the movie is all bad. Um, it's just I, I think it's overrated. But like I said, those are there are very real, very human moments of this, and that's where Richard Kelly is extremely successful. Where the movie just gets stupid, and it starts to deal in things that for, take take me out of the movie is everything else dealing with the rabbit and Frank and the hallucinations. And if it was if that was more, it's made to play as supernatural and not psychological in a lot of ways. And I don't know if that was Richard Kelly's intent or if that was accidental. Either way, I don't love those elements of the movie, um, and I think, it, I think it detracts from the central narrative, because um, I think he's telling an interesting story until, like, oh, and by the way, he's seeing an imaginary rabbit that's telling him about the end of the world. Um, I don't know if it was the copy I watched today on Roku, um, the, the Roku channel on the, on the Roku box, or if or this is the way the film is cut. I don't remember. It was 20 years ago. But there are parts of the movie that replay earlier scenes. And it cuts really quick, quickly. And again, I don't know if that's just the way this copy was playing or if that's part of the film itself. But it's but if, it, if that's part of the actual film, it's really distracting. Over the hmm. last couple of years that I've been doing um, movie reviews and really scrutinizing you know, film craft, I have paid closer attention to editing there are some weird edits in this movie, and so I don't know. Like I said, I, I, I'm not going to die on that hill. I don't know if it was just the copy that I watched because it also had commercials in it. So yeah. Some stuff got replayed. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I think lastly, just so we don't belabor the point, um, I think in defense of the movie, and, and I'll leave it here, 
if nothing else, if nothing else, the cover of Mad World um, by Gary Jules, you know, the cover, the song originally is by Tears for Fears, mm-hmm. is really haunting. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are a few better examples of a song setting the tone of a movie than Mad World. And that, if, if nothing else, if I never watch this movie again, I will always remember cuts of this movie set to Mad World and how hauntingly beautiful that song is. And if you're like me, and you're like, you hear a song in a movie, and you're like, oh my god, I gotta own a copy of that, you should click the link in the description of this podcast at getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. That's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network to, da- to uh, uh, take advantage of our 30-day free trial of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. Uh, you'll get a free 30 days. You can download all the Gary Jewels, the Jewel the Jewel of the Nile, whatever you like. Um, all the Tears for Fears and the Fears for Tears and the Fear Factory, all of it. It's all there on AmazonMusic.com. Get AmazonMusic.com slash W2M Network. You like it, you keep it, you pay the 30, you pay the monthly fee. You don't, you cancel it. No fuss, no muss, no kings, no butts. All right. Um, so that's really it. That's all I have to say. Sean, you got anything else on this or uh, any final word? Well, all I'll add is just that, you know, like, like you said, being overrated is its greatest crime. And that's not necessarily something the movie can the movie can help. Um, in terms of being a portrait of how hollow the '80s were, and, and yeah, you mentioned the you mentioned the dance sequence, which yeah, yeah, that that was a nice little statement point in the movie and it's it's totally justifiable to kind of want to kind of wonder where was where was the cuties energy <laughs> at the time when we were depicting this because it because it it really does pretty much pretty much feel like the same the same damn thing and it was it was visually well done for what it for what it was for what it meant to accomplish and yeah and, and it kind of summed up the you know the the inner turmoil versus versus the superficiality of everything going on around them. and there's there's glimmers of moments of what they should be focusing what they should be focusing on just it tries to do too much all at one time and that's part of the problem with time travel is you really have to have a sense for the details and you really have to measure twice and cut once because otherwise if you get too fast and loose with the logic your audience will catch it and they will land on you for it um it's it's why there there's such a huge huge gap in terms of story between something like this and say terminator 2 back to the future uh, there's uh, this one just leaves too many questions unanswered because it's just kind of veering all over the road the entire fucking time. But and in terms of how it depicts mental illness, yeah, it it had to walk so that a lot of other movies could crawl. We we didn't really have a whole lot in in 2001 and around that time that was quite trying to be as sensitive about it 
as Donnie Darko was. And, and again, they they attempted to. They didn't they didn't exactly stick the landing, but you know, Lord knows they tried. It was something that that Anne mentioned. When we were watching it last night. Uh, she noted how well it was apparently trying to depict schizophrenia. And I mean, she would know because she she comes from a history of mental illnesses in her own family. So you know, when you can kind of get that praise from somebody who knows that of which of which they speak, you're doing something right. But the, the best I the best I can say about it to end it on a more optimistic note is give it a look. It's entirely possible that Mark and I were just not the intended audience for this movie. And I'll and I'll concede to that. But then again, that's also why I kind of resent this notion that it should be the standard bearer for somebody's for somebody's taste in film. Because that's the entire thing about art is more often than not, it's going to be subjective. Some things are are just not going to translate. Some things are just not going to be quite as uh, quite as pinpoint to to just the right soft spots in, in every single viewer. So there may be some of you out there that may that may watch this and feel that it's spoken to you in a way that few other media have. And hey, that's that's great. I hope you I hope you go forward and find other similar movies in the same vein that maybe kind of stand on this movie's shoulders and try to perfect what it was trying to get across. But myself personally, yeah, unfortunately this is one that just as I said, I can't put it either way. It's so much of it just ages like milk. Uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed looking at it, admiring the cinematography. As I as I said, I absolutely adore the music. Uh, that cover of Mad World by Gary Jules has kind of become almost a cultural institution, even if it did also set off that really obnoxious trailer trend of uh, so many movies needing a, a moody, sparse style cover of uh, of a retro pop song to get something to get something or other across. But th- this is one movie in which in which it really was perfect. It, it was the bow that just bound everything so immaculately at the at the end of it so uh give it a look wasn't my wasn't my cup of tea after all after all these after all these years but no harm no foul if you happen to dig it all right like i i think i said at the top of the show um that is it for sean and i for the month of october uh sean and i will do Two more long road, uh, two more shows before the end of the year. We've got the on trial for Resident Evil, the final chapter, on November twenty second, and then um, myself, Sean Comer, and 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 Benjamin J. Cologne, because he will not miss an opportunity to be on a Spider Man show. Um, we're gonna do something at the end of the year to kind of kick off the release of Spider Man No Way Home. I think, believe, yeah, No Way Home. And we've never done this before on Long Road to Ruin. 
We'll probably never do it again. But instead of comparing three different movies, we're going to pair, compare three different movie franchises. So we're not going to do necessarily a deep dive into each individual <laughs> film because I don't want to be on this podcast for nine hours. Um, but we are going to compare and contrast the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man trilogy to the Andrew Garfield duo to um, the, the two Tom Holland movies right before the third one comes out, No Way Home. So I think that'll be a fun discussion. You know, we can look, we'll be looking at what were the, uh, how did they compare to the, to the others? What were the good points? What were the bad points? And really the, the, the question that I'm going to lay before Ben Cologne, who came the closest to being the best Peter Parker, the best Spider-Man of those three actors? You'll find out in December. Uh, December 12th is when I have it slated currently. So that'll be myself, Sean, and Ben. And then that's going to be it for the year. So, um... But if you're if you're like, hey, we need more Sean and Mark, we need more Sean and Mark. That's fine. We only did this long road to ruin in a couple of on trials for like 87 years. So all the shows from those 87 years are being uploaded uh, pretty much weekly between uh, ne- um, earlier this year and next year. <laughs> um, so check out Sean and I and Robert Winfrey, as a matter of fact, reviewing the Paranormal Activities movies. And that does remind me, I should plug this as well. Uh, Robert and I are reviewing Paranormal Activity Next of Kin uh, a week from Tuesday, and Sean's going to have an entire... He's not going to be on the, on the review, but in the news segment, because... Uh, sorry, in the money segment, since there is no money, this is a streaming movie, Sean will have that entire segment to himself to do a revisitation mm-hmm. of, the power, of the first four Paranormal Activities movies. So you're kind of getting a mini Long Road to Ruin solo Sean show, which I'm sure people will enjoy. Um, all right, mm-hmm. so that's it. You got anything you want to say, uh, plug real quick? I, I think you said you were taking a break from streaming or whatever, but if there's something <laughs> else you want to talk about, shoot and we'll get out of here. Yes, uh, the best places to commune with me, if you should so choose right now, are to find me on Twitter, at Comer Codex, and on Instagram, at Comer Codex. I do a whole lot of talking about... Uh, fair warning, lots of socio-political issues, uh, but also in between, you will also find rantings and ravings on hockey, wrestling, music, comics. Uh, oh God, tons about gaming, tons and tons about gaming. Um, I'm I'm a bit of a workout buff, so you got to be ready for me extolling the many virtues of DDP yoga. But otherwise, no, my social media is a pretty fun place to be these days. All right, court is now in recess. Uh, Hope you'll join us again soon. For Sean, I'm Mark. Be well, be safe, and behave.